Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode three of Murdocracy, the podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Sammy, how was mm-hmm. your week? Have you been staying safe amidst all the protests that have been happening in Melbourne? You know what's remarkable is the protests found their way to me. I mean, I, I, I haven't been able to go to the CBD for a while anyway, so I wasn't affected there. But and 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 I haven't had a date with John Setka, the CFMU, in ages, so you know <laughs> I missed out on that excitement too. But I live in Northcote, which is a suburb where about sixty protesters made their way to a park right across from my apartment while I happened to be picnicking there. And then they were met with upwards of 500 cops in riot gear. And, and it was really interesting because there's these protesters running up and down the park, cops chasing them up and down the park, while everyone else, if families with kids and dogs, are all sitting around eating cheese, having wine and going, oh, look at that. <laughs> so it was a very surreal experience. Yeah, it was It was kind of crazy to, to see that happening and and. I think like one of the underappreciated parts of all of this is that the vast majority of people have gotten vaccinated. The vast majority of people even support vaccine mandates mm. in industry. So the people out there really, really were this like vocal minority. And yeah, like they get a lot of attention. They were doing something exciting. A lot of us are stuck in our homes. We want something to watch. But I kind of, you know, I started to feel a bit like doomer. I started to feel like, oh God, like this, you know, this fight against the vaccine will never end. And then I realized it's pretty much over. Like, you know, in a month, a lot of Australians will be out, you know, the restrictions will be lifted. We've really like, you know, science, the vaccinated have kind of won this. These are just people, I think, what was essentially like the last gasp of a movement that's um, increasingly irrelevant. I think that's the only thing. We don't know for sure. They, they could be, and they, they and all the evidence points to them being the last gasp of a movement that's irrelevant or the first gasp of a movement that's about to blow your house down. <laughs> and I think we're kind of torn in deciding between the two because on one side, we've got America as an example of where this can go when unchecked. And the other side, we've got, I guess, you know, Europe and everything as an example of, of how well this can go if checked in time. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure where we are yet on that spectrum. Yeah, let's let's let's. I'm gonna be optimistic for once. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded more like a desperate choice on your part than anything else. I need to be optimistic, mm-hmm. uh, Sammy. Before we get into uh, News Corp news of the week and also our interview, we will be chatting to Dave Milner, who is a columnist at the Shot, who has been really one of the main watchers of News Corp's influence in Melbourne. A particularly big story uh, considering what has happened this week. But before we get into that, I just wanted to uh, mention two things. Mm. One, if you have been enjoying the podcast, if you like it, and there's anyone in your life you know might uh, like listening to it, might be interested, might be informed by it, can I highly recommend that you pass it on? Give them the gift of finding out how News Corp is really influencing Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of a better Christmas present than a subscription to Murdocracy, the podcast. (laughs) We are coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) 
the second thing I also want to say is from next week, we're going to launch a new segment, uh, draft title, Good News Corp, Bad News Corp, where we mention some of the good takes that have come from News Corp that week and the bad takes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's pretty easy. I think there's a few familiar suspects who might appear in the bad takes, but there's also a lot of great journalism that happens in News Corp as well, and we wanted to promote that and say you're doing the right thing. So if you have seen something that you think is good, if you've seen something that you think is awful, please, you can DM it to us. You can email us at murdocracy at gmail.com or comment in our Facebook group, uh, Murdocracy. We'd love to hear from you what you think has been good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's one thing that you and I have both agreed on right from the start is while we want, you know, we don't want this to seem like it's just a news score bashing enterprise. The idea was to to take stock of this media outlet that is basically the most powerful media outlet in, in the Western world, or at least in, in, in several major countries, I would argue. But uh, the idea that, you know, we're just going to be sit here and be like, it's evil, it's the propaganda wing of right-wing politics, and, you know, everything it spews is poison, is a convenient hot take, but it's not exactly the truth either. Yeah, but if you do spot some propaganda, send it our way oh, as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to news of the week. Mm. You know an election must be coming up because we've just seen the time-honoured tradition of the Prime Minister going to kiss the ring. First reported by the West Australian's Lanny Scar, Scott Morrison has met with Rupert Murdoch's top lieutenant for a private dinner in New York this week. ScoMo's first engagement when he touched down in the US uh, was to meet with Australia's ambassador to the US, Arthur Sinodinus, Australia's consul general, Nick Grainer, and of course, News Corp CEO, Robert Thompson. Sammy, what do you think that it says about Australian politics? That it's actually pretty normal for the most powerful person in the country to go and speak with the head of a media company when an election is not too far away. The thing that's embarrassing for me is that it wasn't a meeting with Rupert Murdoch. Because in the past, when when prime ministers have gone to America or wherever, they've had to go and and literally suckle at the teat of Murdoch and, you know, whatever black, black oil oozes from those nipples is what they have to drink from. But the trip this time, Murdoch wasn't available. So the you know, the meeting was with Robert Thompson, who's the chief executive of News Corp. That feels like a demotion on Scott Morrison's part. It feels like, you know, he didn't get to meet the CEO. He gets to meet the CFO, which is still powerful, but not that powerful. I'm still reeling from before of the visual you painted of of Scott Morrison uh, suckling at the teat of Rupert Murdoch. Oh, man. I mean, I don't know what happens behind these things. You know, maybe, you know, maybe they sit down and have a civilized conversation over a glass of scotch like adults. Maybe one of them takes his shirt off and the other one plants lip to nipple. Who knows? There's no way of knowing for sure unless they let us in on the conversation. I would never yuck someone else's yum as well. Exactly. Exactly. Bill Shorten last election actually took the step of not meeting with him, which kind of, which drew attention. It still feels bizarre to me that the way that News Corp and its leadership act in many ways very similarly to political figures because, you know, in the lead up to an election, a a prime minister or a head of a party will try and 
uh, shore up support from different stakeholders. It just happens in this case that one of the stakeholders is a, a company that's supposed to, you know, be fiercely independent and committed to the truth. So I'm not sure what the justification is for going and, and trying to shore up support in that way. But I guess that's just how Australian politics works. I mean, it's kind of how all politics works around the world. There's in the very few um countries in the world that i i can think of and probably none actually now that i think about it where a very powerful if not the most powerful media tycoon doesn't have direct access to the country's political leadership um you know even in pakistan it, it's a very common thing for news channel owners to be able to get dinner with the prime minister if they so desire depending on the relationship the news channel has with the prime minister and stuff but you know it, 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 i don't know for me this seems like it's one of those things where we have the, the, the illusion or the, or the facade of what we want Australia to be. And then we've got the reality of what Australia is. And the reality is a lot more normal than we'd like to think it is as well. Yeah, I wonder if Scott Morrison is also dining with uh, Mike Sneedsby, the the CEO of Nine. Uh, haven't heard. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's the interesting thing though. While, while reading this story, I came across another thing, which is uh, uh, when Kevin Rudd went to New York in 2003. Apparently, uh, the New York Post editor at the time, Cole Allen, took him to a steakhouse and a strip club. Yeah, that's right. And 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 interestingly, so Cole Allen is a really fascinating guy because pretty sure he's an Australian. He was over in the US for a while and he was part of, if I'm not mistaken, the New York Post's uh, embrace of Donald Trump during his presidency. Oh. He was spotted recently uh, around News Corp headquarters in Australia early this year. But I think he might have gone back over to, to head up the New York Post's uh, or at least to kind of consult the New York Post about how they uh, tackle the Joe Biden presidency. So, you know, um, Robert Thompson, the, the CEO who Scott Morrison met with, he is an Australian. Uh, Cole Allen is an Australian, but it kind of shows the way that, you know, obviously um, we get influenced by the US, but there's a lot of Australians through uh, who, who, who have been in the vehicle of News Corp who are now actually very influential in the US and, and their kind of politics and media as well. Yeah, there's, um, we're definitely good at exporting um, media personalities and editors who will go and poison other people's wells as well. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of our big exports that we don't get enough credit for. Exactly. Um, so moving on to the next story, not just satisfied with Binge and KO, Foxtel mm. is set to launch a news-based streaming service. This was reported by Nine's Zoe Samius. Flash, which is the name of the service, will launch in mid-October with CNN, CNBC, BBC, Fox News, and of course, Sky News Australia. It's supposed to be a, I think it's going to be priced around $10 a month. And it's, you know, for, for the news junkies out there who want to be able to live stream and also catch up on previous uh, broadcasts. Sammy, maybe I'm being closed-minded. Mm. Maybe I'm being too much of a millennial here. But I'm kind of skeptical that people are going to pay for something that I'm pretty sure news companies just give away on, on YouTube anyway. What do you reckon? I Here's what I think. I think um, the popularity of these streaming services and everything tends to be surprising when you look at the option of piracy, when you look at the options are available. But people like convenience, you know, for example... Um, with music. I mean, yes, you can still pirate MP3s and LimeWire and everything, you know, all these softwares were available for ages and 
But in the end, Apple's iTunes and Spotify and stuff just made it easier by making a subscription service. And if yes, if there is a new subscription service, I don't doubt that news junkies would pay to get a convenient thing in their homes. I mean, right now living here, it's a pain to go to the BBC website, the BBC app, or to find CNN and a lot of these places then also have, you know, geocaching. So you can't really watch Fox News or you can't really watch CNBC properly in Australia. So I think there is definitely some benefit to it. The problem I have is the name. So <laughs> if you go to binge.com, it's a website for gaming. If you want to go to Binge in Australia, the actual Foxhall service, you have to go to binge.com.au. And I always found that confusing because I'm like, why would you choose a name that someone else has taken already internationally? Mm -hmm. You can't even get the proper URL for it. Well, if you go to flash.com, it takes you to Adobe's website because the Flash mm. software that used to exist. If you go to flash.com.au, it takes you to a graphics website, which does, you know, prints posters and banners and light boxes and, and uh, display stands and media walls. So what website URL are they going to use for this Flash name? And who is coming up with these lazy ass names? Binge, <laughs> KO and Flash all suck as names. I'd say KO is actually not bad. I'll give KO that. Although I thought for the longest time that KO was a, a, a manga streaming service, but still. <laughs> where does where does KO the name even come from? I'm gonna look it up. The, right from now. from sports, right? From boxing with KO. Oh, so, oh wait, KO. They literally, yeah, they literally oh, just turned that into a. Oh right, gotcha, gotcha. This is what happens uh, when marketing like, teams get together yeah. with advertising teams, and all of them do tons of market uh, research, and they make bad decisions. I know that's crazy. Yeah, look, I'm more uh, I'm more bearish on how Flash will go. In fact, I'm willing to bet, I feel confident mm. about this, that Flash the printing company will outlive Flash the streaming service. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on them. <laughs> knowing nothing about Flash the printing company, we are still willing to put, well, established in 1986. I'm looking at the website oh. right now. So yeah, maybe they do have longevity on their side. Um, but also, like, they're talking to ABC about this. It's not just, you know, gonna, it's not just going to be CNN, CNBC, BBC, Fox News, Sky News. They're also talking to Channel 9, Channel 7, and ABC. And that'll be interesting when our state broadcaster has to pay to be on someone else's news broadcasting app because otherwise, yeah, I, I don't know. It just feels like at, this, at some point, we just have to have a conversation about whether or not News Corp is the official state broadcaster of Australia. <laughs> well, they do get taxpayer funding, so mm -hmm. and they don't pay tax. So knows, yeah. they, are, they are taxpayer funded. I mean, if I was the ABC, I wouldn't, and not because of, uh, you know, fears of, of Rupert Murdoch and, and you know, ScoMo sucking at his teeth or mm. whatever. Sorry, I'm still, I'm still reeling from the visual. <laughs> if you're one of these companies, you want to own the relationship between you and your audience. And mm. so the ABC, it, it, it would behoove them to make sure that people are, if they want to stream the ABC channels, they do it through the ABC app. Because, you know, they get access to all the information. They can change the app in the future. It allows them to be like, you know, all the customers. And, and sorry, that's such a, a bad way of looking at it. But their audience is like, my relationship is with the ABC. When you go through something like Flash or another service, it means that that relationship is then no longer direct. And you're not, you're not kind of building up that direct relationship. So, you know, say in the future, ABC is like, actually, like, I don't know if it really serves us being, you know, having David Spears 
uh, alongside Rowan mm-hmm. Dean in terms of competition. Like it puts them on the same pedestal. I really think that the pedigree is a bit different there. They may say we don't want to do it anymore. And then users of Flash in this hypothetical might not actually be like, well, I love David Spears. I'm going to go over to the ABC. They might be like, I'm going to keep watching, you know, things on Flash. So I think, you know, if I was a media executive, <laughs> I would advise them not to do that. Um, and I would, you know, I'd be like, we want to get people on our own services. So to me, it is a bit of a head scratcher, the idea that they would want to, but I guess as well, you know, the flip side is maybe they're like, if we can get eyeballs on our content through any way, then maybe we should just do it. Well, I, there's also then Foxtel's or, or uh, you know, News Corp's own interest in this entire thing, because one of the big changes that's happening is that they're trying to, in the next 18 months, transition people away from cable TV subscriptions altogether and move them across to IQ5, which is their new um, subscription box, I guess. Um, and that's going to be a huge challenge for them, because you know, at the end of the day, while they do have many subscribers on KO, where, you know, I think 1 million subscribers are on KO, and binge has around 700,000 or so subscribers um, to give up that entire subscription base that is cable connected, you know, particularly people in rural Australia um, who rely on these things a lot. Uh, that's a big risk for them, particularly when you factor in the fact that they are going to be going public soon, or at least they're, they're very seriously mm-hmm. looking into that. So I don't know how much of this w- is is just guaranteed to improve the public offering or actually a long term strategy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, and you know, they're probably just throwing anything they can at the wall and being like, well, we already we already own the rights to broadcast a lot of these things on Foxtel. Why don't we just whack it on a streaming service and see how it goes? So would you get it? No. So I, like, I have Binge. I, 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 whether I like it or not, you know, the fact of the matter is if I want to watch What We Do in the Shadows, I can either go to a piracy torrent website, which is a mm-hmm. pain, or just go to Binge. And so I have Binge. Um, and I would not normally care about this, but if it has BBC, you know, I might be tempted across because a part of me goes, that's a really convenient way of watching BBC. Yeah, I understand that. I, I tend to, I mean, I don't, I tend to, if I watch a news channel, I tend to just watch the ABC and my mm. other consumption tends to be more seeking stuff out. And in which case, all these services, CNN, BBC, Sky News Australia, if I want to, they're all on YouTube because they're trying to get their content out there. I doubt very much that they're going to go behind some kind of geo-blocking wall or paywall because, you know, they really want their content out there. I agree this is to kind of get the, like, you know, the the, the former uh, Foxtel subscriber to sign up to a whole package of things. For me, I just don't really see the appeal. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see how it plays out. Indeed. Sammy, are you sitting down right now? Um, hang on. Okay, now. Okay, good, good. Because I, I don't know why I was standing earlier, by the way. <laughs> Just, you know, the energy of this podcast. I was really... I going. do all my podcasts standing up. Yeah. Would you believe that News Corp, the company, did one thing while its hosts told its viewers to do another? That because... has never happened before. And <laughs> I think you're a damn dirty liar, Cam. Well, that's what it is, is happening according to Jeff Dembicki, who wrote for Vice about how News Corp execs have for years spoke about the dangers of climate change and the need to take action while their hosts publicly downplayed it or even denied it. He went through some publicly available documents to show how the company did things like advocate for a carbon tax, took steps to protect themselves against the risks of climate change, 
and attributed natural disasters to climate change, while people like Rowan Dean said, actually, you know, everything's fine, or in fact, global warming is actually helping us. Sammy, does this sound like the News Corp that we know and love? <laughs> this, I mean, the new, you're talking about the same News Corp here, which last week we discussed how they have vaccine mandated their entire staff and everyone in the Sydney offices and stuff has to get the vaccine if they want to continue working there and be allowed in the building. Yeah, but publicly that sounds familiar. Co- constantly <laughs> has anti-vaxxers being promoted on their shows. Yeah, um, that does sound familiar. <laughs> you know what's interesting is, okay, so I've got several friends who work in the corporate sector and yeah. many of them, you know, they work in marketing teams or they work in finance divisions, etc. And many of them have been telling me about how the corporate world has very aggressively started trying to move towards a greener existence because now their CEOs, their board of executives and everyone are realizing that this is not sustainable. But, you know, it's a big pivot that many of them are trying. It's going to be time. It's going to take time because entire chains of supply have to be, um, you know, transition and stuff. But it is something there's a panic about it. News Corp is at the end of the day, a business and a smart business does whatever it can to keep its profitability at its core. So, of course, they took on the green initiatives way earlier because it means certain guarantees in the long-term thinking in terms of you know access to markets that that have stricter controls around this stuff also it means a good credit rating when it comes to you know, mm. going public all of these things the idea that they then used all of this to meanwhile propagandize um anti-climate change language um is interesting because it's in the end it comes down to politics is now more than ever before a subscription deal. If you subscribe to right-wing politics, for example, conservative politics, then you are subscribing to the idea that um, climate change isn't real, vaccinations aren't to be trusted, um, Invermectin is pretty good, Joe Rogan is a soothsayer, CRT is going to destroy the schools, mm-hmm. that, you know, all of these things, that, that communism is everywhere, these become a wholesale subscription that you take on. You don't just take on one of them. And I think that's what News Corp kind of does is in its coverage, it's it's doing not just one thing, but it's doing all of them, spreading its net far and wide. The end result, of course, has been that uh, it's uh, you know advocated for less climate change advocacy within the Australian politics and Australian government and probably in America and stuff as well. But uh, I don't know. If they're a greener company, that's good for us, I guess. But yeah, maybe maybe that's down to the News Corp viewers to have a little bit more discretion in what they're viewing. Businesses leading the way in climate change is good insofar as it means something is happening. But I do personally worry that when they take the kind of leadership on this, we then kind of frame climate change and action to respond to climate change and to prevent climate change around whether it makes business sense, which Mm -hmm. ultimately is not the problem. That's kind of actually how we got here in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Like we let, you know, capitalism run amok and we let companies and continue to let companies um, pollute the atmosphere. So I do kind of worry about that when we almost cede leadership to them and and frame it around, well, you know, we should do something about climate change as long as it's profitable. That being said, businesses are leading the way, at least in Australia. It's the same with, you know, Department of Defense in Australia and also um, and in the US has actually often been, uh, has led government on climate change because then they're like, well, we don't really care about the, you know, petty uh, partisan bullshit. We just have to, you know, set up our troops for the best 
killing of other countries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we know to do that, we have to be aware of climate change. So when you kind of see News Corp saying one thing while doing another, that's actually, we should keep that in mind that, well, even though uh, they're doing something, that's still like pretty close to the bare minimum. And it still isn't the level that, at which we should set like our expectations for climate action. I don't know. I'm, I'm fairly passionate about this because I think that in Australia particularly, we have lagged so far behind and mm. it's actually it's actually a very um i think it's not a, it's actually a very radical thing i think now to say that we shouldn't be doing thing about climate change because the science is clear we know that the world is on fire and it's it's things are getting worse to decide that we're not going to do anything is in itself radical it's like saying oh the car's driving off the cliff but to suddenly you know uh to to change the direction it's going in whoa that's a big step actually no that's like that's the conservative thing to do i mean keep in mind nancy pelosi just said that australia is leading the way on climate change so maybe oh. the standards are just that low around across the board i think i think she was um just doing them a solid for, for being there you know you <laughs> you, you kind of you, you know being a bit of a wingman you you you, mm-hmm. you pick up your mate even though you're like oh yeah he's mate he's a good looking rooster isn't he <laughs> yes <laughs> anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> don't know how we got mm-hmm. onto there and finally Sammy, you might remember the news media bargaining code, which was that uh, world first law in Australia that forced Facebook and Google to negotiate with news publishers to pay for their content if they didn't come to deals by themselves. That was passed earlier this year, and it was driven in large part by News Corp, also nine papers as well. But but the media, you know, very, very much pushed the fact that these companies, these big tech platforms, should be paying for content. Well, it's been six months on, News Corp, Nine, uh, Seven, many other big players have signed deals. But after they got their money, it seems as though the well has dried up. We've seen now the conversation, SBS, along with smaller outlets, have actually been snubbed by Facebook, who says, we're not going to give you new deals. You can go through our existing kind of, we have news grant programs. Mm-hmm. So what happens next is the government could force Facebook to negotiate with them under this law but we haven't seen any suggestion that they will so far. So, Sammy, do you think that this reveals anything about the attempts, you know, the objective of the law to promote public service journalism in Australia? I think it's what it does is it prom- it shows or makes lays bare um, what uh, Facebook qualifies or quantifies as worthwhile journalism on its platform. Because one of the things that, that the Facebook's uh, you know head of news partnerships for Australia and New Zealand, Andrew Hunter, when asked about this, the fact that you know Mumbrella, um, SBS, uh, you know the conversation, they couldn't get deals with Facebook. When he, he responded and said, saying our commercial deals are based on a range of factors, including the type of content of it developed uh, and reach and engagement. And I think it comes down to the last two over there, reach and engagement and reach and engagement. As you know, as anyone on social media knows, the more bombastic something is, the more political it is, the more likely you are to see it getting really spread far and wide on Facebook. And SBS, at the end of the day, tends to not be as controversial a channel compared to your ABC, mm. compared to your your Sky News, etc. The conversation, you know, long essays that uh, combine academics with analysis of real world events, it's great and it's fantastic, but it reminds me a lot, you know, more like Australia's version of perhaps The Atlantic without, you know, The Atlantic probably doesn't have that kind of academic gravitas. 
it's not the kind of thing Facebook users gravitate towards. And I'm sure if you look at the Facebook pages of Conversation and, and SBS and stuff, the amount of engagement will not be anywhere near the kind of people that Facebook may, did want to sit at the table with. And I think that's what it'll come down to. Do you know, I think the SBS actually does pretty well, especially considering they're, they're you know, significantly smaller than the ABC mm-hmm. for contrast. They, they really are up there with one of the top publishers on Facebook. I mean, my like kind of you know, realist take on it is that News Corp, along with Nine, along with other major publications, you know, the really, really big ones in Australia, their coverage was extremely critical of of Facebook and Google. And what those two companies viewed this as, as essentially a, you know, like, have you seen that meme that's like, I'm going to pay you $500 to fuck off? Like, yes. like, like I, I think that they kind of viewed this as we will pay what is ultimately peanuts for us mm-hmm. to these major companies to get them to stop picking on us about this and then you know at the same time it also pays for journalism we get to then say our services support journalism everyone's kind of happy because you remember that like you know uh, in particular news corp was public was pushing so hard on this was editorializing on this of course they have the you know they have a lot of influence over the government as well and so and and they rewarded when the government took mm-hmm. action on this you know they were so positive about this and so that seemed like a good thing and you know the government got to stand up and say we're doing something for for journalism where we're pushing back against big tech which is a very popular line at the moment did actually cost them anything because Facebook and Google are directly paying to publishers and they also, and the government as well gets to say, Oh, we're doing something for journalism. You know, everyone's kind of winner out of this except for Facebook and Google. But in the scheme of things, they're like, you know what? It's actually not that much to pay them off. So now that that's been done, now that the big players, the ones who are the, the ones who, who can editorialize, who can use their weight against them have been paid off they're kind of like the others can deal with it. And they're daring, I think, the government to say, do something about this. Force us to have to negotiate with them. We'll play hardball again, assuming that 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 the government knows that mm-hmm. everyone, like the, the current situation is good. Sure, the smaller players are, are losing out, but they can't cause enough of a fuss for it to be an issue. There's the thing that Facebook has kind of done, which is um, it's a, it reeks of corporate social responsibility programs. You know, like when, it, when a big company goes into a village in a third world country, builds a well and then walks away and the well actually doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but they get to put it in their brochures that look at us building wells in third world countries and everyone goes, oh, my God, Unilever isn't evil. I think it's something like that where uh, Facebook has done, you know, they've called it the Australian News Fund, which is mm. a, uh, an investment to totaling about $15 million over three years into rural and regional newsroom training programs. And now I think they've given $1.5 million to reader revenue acceleration programs in newsrooms, mm-hmm. which sounds great, but it's, it's actually not much money at all. At all, when you consider Facebook's income, revenue, etc., and the kind of damage they've caused in newsrooms across Australia. So, yeah, they, they've got this thing now where I think they've got what they wanted. This negotiation went, it benefited the people who wanted to benefit from it the most who had the power rather to benefit from it, from, from it the most and those who have no real negotiating power now are being left out yeah and and you'll remember we this is something that we've covered and i think is undercovered by other people is that 
News Corp in particular has some established relationships with Facebook and Google, and they've benefited greatly off them. Mm-hmm. This is another example. You know, they're, they're getting paid directly for their content. Their content gets promoted. You know, it's a real big win for them. And now that Facebook has, you know, essentially being like, well, we've, we're, we're out of trouble. We've got them off our back. They've kind, they've kind of, they're leaving the SBS, the conversation and other small publishers on red. In a week where we've seen several protests in Melbourne, some of them descending into violence, shutting down the Westgate Bridge, and even accusations of defacing the closest the city has to a sacred site, the Shrine of Remembrance, journalist David Miller has written a column detailing where he thinks the blame lies. The headline of that column? Nazis prey on the disenfranchised and angry, so does News Corporation. David, welcome to the Medocracy. You clearly have a point of view on this. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty clear in the headline, wasn't it? I do have a point. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, Sammy. No, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. So, all right, let's talk about this for a second. Um, it's been an intense week in Victoria. We've seen some of these protests kind of happening before. We've seen them building momentum. But this week, something seems to have shifted. Something has definitely shifted and i mean it is interesting because the, the context here is we are literally up to day 230 something of mm-hmm. lockdown um and basically the entire time that this city has been copying the brunt of the coronavirus pandemic news corporation has been running and a really incessant campaign against the labor government here but also by extension really against lots of the health orders that our chief uh, medical officer has been imposing for, you know, nearly two years now. Um, and the the idea that that doesn't have any sort of impact or effect on compliance and general sentiment is utter nonsense to my to my point of view. All right. So you, look, you, you're a journalist. You, you know, you've been in this game for a long time. You've, you also set up an, an, a, a news outlet of your own for a while there, which was Game Informer, which was you know, focused around gaming, but it's still as journalistic as anything else. And you know, there is this tendency journalists, we journalists tend to have of overemphasizing the role of news in people's lives. Do you worry or is there a chance that um, you're, you're putting undue influence, you're giving undue credit to News Corp here? I, I think how, for, for me, it's not about, you can never really assign direct blame to any of these things. It's incredibly hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to point out is that this really is an ecosystem. These ideas, some of them do reflect ideas in wider society and some of them stoke them. And this works in lockstep with the sorts of things politicians say, particularly in this instance, conservative politicians. So assigning direct blame is is difficult. But the idea that, I mean, if media didn't have any impact whatsoever, none of us would be doing it there'd be absolutely no point in setting up a giant worldwide uh, conservative media network that pushes very hard for one side of politics to the other. If that didn't have an impact, people wouldn't be doing it. So I think the tendency to overplay the impact of this sort of media is as prominent as the tendency to underplay that. And lots of journal I think the bigger crime in Australia, lots of journalists 
don't like to talk about what News Corp is actually doing to the body politic here. I think that's a far more widespread phenomenon. All right, so why? Let's say, you know, you, you, have you given some thought and consideration as to what the motivation here could be? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 if you look at the... If you look at every single cover from the Herald Sun mm-hmm. over the last two, two years, basically, and compare it to every single cover from the Daily Telegraph, the, I mean, the clear bias is anti-Labour, pro-Liberal. This is, it's just, it's very difficult to argue otherwise. Um, Kevin Rudd is quite good at making this point. Um, but the other thing is, it's not, I don't think it's that simple. It's either, for whatever reason, much of our media is centralised in New South Wales. And there is a strange New South Wales-centricness to the way lots of this framing is done. Even, even this week, you know, a thousand cases and thousands of people in hospital is not a crisis in New South Wales. That is a state uh, about to embrace freedom. Fewer mm-hmm. cases and fewer deaths and fewer people in hospital is a state overrun in Victoria. This, you know, we have a despot apparently. We have an imaginary communist dictatorship down here. It's a very strange narrative that is so pervasive. I do think lots of people in Australia don't pick up on just how odd this way of framing things is. So one of the things I found really interesting is how the Herald Sun, for example, is one of the, you know, in your article, you kind of single out the Herald Sun as one of the major influences in this kind of, I guess we can use the word radicalization. Can we use the word radicalization? I think we should be using the word radicalization. All right. So for the sake of this conversation, let's use the word radicalization. And you say the Herald Sun is, is responsible for this radicalization. It is humongously popular. I mean, the, the Herald Sun has seen, uh, according to basically the, um, you know, the, ser- the services and systems that, that see subscription rates, that, that gauge popularity in media. Um, let's see, we've got, I'm quoting directly from, right now from the Herald Sun itself, but it says new readership figures reveal the Herald Sun is the most read newspaper in Australia every day of the week. And the total monthly Victorian print and digital audience of the Herald Sun is the, in the biggest state at 2.96 million. Now, we are, despite all of this, despite the fact that the Herald Sun is so hugely read across Victoria, we're still a Labour voting state. It's a fairly safe Labour seat. You know, does that not speak something to the fact that they're not as influential as they think they are? Uh, what I think it speaks to is... I mean, what happened last... Actually, those figures, I have to check them, but recently we've mm-hmm. seen um, circulation of the Herald Sun drop by quite a lot. It is now smaller than the Daily Telegraph. Um, it's, lo- it's hemorrhaged hundreds of thousands of readers since the start of the pandemic. And I think part of that is that the bias has become incredibly... Just more obvious than it usually is, because what's happened in Victoria is we've had these press conferences every day, particularly through the long lockdown last year, where for the first time audiences were able to see the primary source of this information Mm -hmm. and the questions being asked and then later the next day the filtered version of it through the press. And it was very easy to see, you know, the tour of the sausage factory basically and we're not ending up with sausages. And that has definitely had an impact on its influence. But I, I get your point about the fact that this is still a predominantly Labour state, I think it points to, yeah, it does point to the limits of the influence of this type of um, persuasive media. And that is, 
I, I'm not. I would never say that this sort of reporting is, you know, overwhelmingly. You know, it can't brainwash everybody. That's not mm-hmm. how it works. But it is about. It's about the a relatively significant chunk of the population that don't pay the same amount of attention than you know journalists, people like you or I, mm-hmm. that can get caught up in basically just the headlines. And then it's not just the paper itself. It's how it spreads, you know, from the headlines to people making their own content on YouTube and social media, um, you know, modern influencers, basically. And this stuff ripples across the internet. And because it's not really about the details, it's about the broader strokes, that stuff spreads and ends up in people's minds without them really realizing where it's come from. So it is, yeah, it's a, it's a broader ecosystem mm-hmm. and it is, it's difficult to pin down, but you're absolutely right. There are limits to its power. And I think we do see that at certain points when the reality becomes so discordant with the content that's being produced. That's when it becomes least powerful. Well, here in Victoria, for example, we've got the Saturday paper as well. It's a local newspaper published uh, by Macquarie Publishing. And, and, and they've done, for the first time I've seen, an editorial criticizing News Corp as well, and the Herald Sun particularly, for their you know encouragement, so to speak, of uh, these anti-vaxxers, of these protesters, of these tradies. You know, the, the headline for your article is very telling. You say, Nazis prey on the disenfranchised and angry, so does News Corp. So do you buy into that, that uh, explanation that many of the people at these protests were Nazis and not actually just tradies, union tradies, etc.? Oh, no, they were absolutely tradespeople, mm-hmm. absolutely anti-vaxxers, absolutely Nazis as well. My point is that I think Australia does get derailed sometimes and has the wrong conversation. I think the point is that even if there only were... I mean, Nazi agitators infiltrate these movements and do stoke these things. It doesn't really matter whether it was 100% of them or whether it was 10% of the, or 20%. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's happening is actually the thing we should be talking about because, you know, it always starts at 10% and then it becomes 20 and then 30. These things grow unless they're called out and stuffed out early on. Um... I did interview Sally McManus for the piece that I wrote mm-hmm. um, this week and you know, um, secretary of the ACTU. And she is concerned that this is very much a deliberate targeting of um, working people and, and unionists as well. This is a historic global pattern. It is what fascists tend to do. And if we're getting caught up in the details of, you know, whether this is being run by the CFMEU, which... CFMEU has completely disendorsed mm-hmm. it, then I think we're missing actually the bigger, more important point. You know, that, that we had Nazis singing Dara Braithwaite on the Westgate Bridge. That is, for me, for my yeah. mind, a greater concern. So if, for example, you know, this is something where, let's say there's many streams to radicalization, there's all the stuff people have on YouTube and all the message forums and all the telegrams and the, and the chats and all that, and also... News Corp kind of plays a role in that. We've got Andrew Bolt's columns in the end. We've got Rita Panahi's statements in the end. We've got all the coverage they give to all these people and the way they frame this dialogue. We did have the Prime Minister of Australia, the literal Prime Minister of Australia, on his trip to New York, the first person he had dinner with wasn't someone from the White House. It was Robert Thompson, News Corp chief executive. It was. Do we... Do, <laughs> 
is this a battle that's lost? Is this, you know, uh, should we just cede this ground and try picking a fight somewhere else? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I can totally see where the fatalism comes from when that is... I mean, that's just an indication right there of the power of this insidious media network. I think that's more reason to call it out. That's more reason to fight. And I always take heart from the example of uh, Liverpool, 1989, that did drive an entire News Corp tabloid out of the city when it went too far uh, in relation to the way it reported about a tragedy at the Hillsborough Stadium. The entire city turned on the newspaper and now, what is it, uh, it's more than 30 years later, you still can't buy that newspaper in that city. It's the only example in the world of a city driving a military tabloid out, but it is also proof that it can happen with the right amount of agitation and social consciousness. Um, that's not reason to stop fighting. That's reason to keep fighting. And now with the column that you've written over here, what, do you ever get backlash? Do you ever see you know, News Corp reporters, News Corp editors, or everyone getting in touch with you or responding to you and <laughs> saying, always... come on, mate. They always slowly, um, like a few weeks ago, I wrote about the Daily Telegraph and the editor of the Daily Telegraph, you know, surreptitiously followed me on Twitter and then didn't say anything. They all circle and I think they're just, I think they're at the point where it's better for them still to try to ignore me. Mm -hmm. Most of the feedback is actually, I, I can't believe how overwhelmingly positive the feedback I get is. I, um, it's actually, yeah, it's overwhelming. I'm, you know, everyone says that Twitter's a sewer and the internet's an awful place, but I'm just having a lovely time on there. People really <laughs> appreciate when I call this stuff out. So, yeah, it's actually been the opposite experience. I do definitely get um, people disagreeing with me, and I'm completely comfortable with that and fine, as long as it's in good faith. I think these, I think more journalists should actually be open to that sort of feedback to be perfectly honest um, what, what about the, the the claim then that uh, this provides balance you know the abc and the guardian and the age are left wing and so we need right wing and the herald sun and the australian and sky news provides that balance and you know and in the middle is where every australian walks i i mean i find it really quite disingenuous when it's such an overwhelming tilt to the right and, you know, fairly extreme right-wing views as well. I mean, Kevin Rudd likes to talk about, you know, this News Corp is 70% of the print readership in Australia uh, and Sky News as well is not massive on terrestrial TV but streamed on the internet is basically, you know, it's larger than the ABC and then it, this ripples through the internet as well. Um, I think... It also misses a slight point that when you're looking at something in a newspaper and it is printed and it looks professional and like actual real news, it is slightly more... It's not really about this balance between left and right because you're obfuscating the fact that this really is heavily opinion and ideological driven. You look at the front cover of, yeah, the Herald Sun, there are so many... You know, the selective photos of Dan Andrews rubbing his hands together, you know, with glee, and the headline is the Premier's grab for ultimate power. This sort of stuff, that's not really... I don't know how you could balance that, really. Like, you could have the most rabidly left-wing piece in, you know, countering that, but it's not going to have the same impact whatsoever. This is on 
whether someone picks it up and reads it or not, it's inside Coles and Woolworths, it's on shelves. I mean, I still work in magazines. The real power of magazines is what's on the cover, what people walk past. It's got very little to do with the content mm. on the inside. You know, these are walking billboards for a certain way of thinking. And that way of thinking seems to be, at least according to some of the evidence around Melbourne right now, growing in popularity. Um, what happens, you think, once we get out of lockdown? You think these uh, anti-vaxxers, these, these tradies and everyone who are, who are against the lockdown, you know, and, the, and some of them, you might argue, have fairly legitimate concerns in terms of, you know, their lives have been disrupted and stuff. Do you think they go away? Do you think we get back to a simpler, happier time? I think, I mean, yeah, the, the, it's a tough question because everyone does want to, I mean, even me, I just want to go to the beach and think about things that aren't pandemics. Like, I think there will absolutely be a bit of a pressure valve let go when we can do a bit more of that stuff again. Mm -hmm. But I am concerned about, you know, the, the undercurrent of, well, basically white supremacy, and some of these anti-science movements that are all sort of the same Venn diagram at the moment, that's really hard to put back away, back in the can once it's been unleashed. So it, it's going to be interesting. And, and the other thing that I do, do really want to stress, and I stressed this a lot in my reporting last year, is that this is a very, all things considered, this is a very tiny amount of people. And Melbourne, for its part, last year was an astonishingly well-behaved city mm -hmm. given what it had to endure and that sense of solidarity is still it's still there amongst all the lovely good people that I talk to but they're just feeling a little bit disheartened by what's happening on the streets at the moment I don't know what will happen but yeah, I hope it's better than this. And one final question before I let you go. We've, you know, we are still in lockdown here in Melbourne. People in Sydney in lockdown. Anyone um, looking for some good distractions? What games are you playing right now that you recommend? <laughs> my, my, um, my attention span is so shot at the moment that the only thing I can concentrate on is really short, sharp bursts. So I'm playing the, uh, the Tony Hawk Pro Skater remake. Okay. Um, and that's great because it is literally, it's two minutes uh, each time you get on the skateboard and you do as many tricks as you can and then that's done. I don't need to pay attention to a complicated story. I don't need to spend 40 hours unraveling a plot. It's just skateboarding. So I've really enjoyed that. That's That'd be my pick. All right, excellent. There's the recommendation. Enjoy that, everyone. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thanks, sorry. That was Dave Milner, who is a columnist at The Shot, uh, who has really done a great job of covering how News Corp has been such an active player in Melbourne, the lockdowns uh, and the way that even that these protests unfolded this week. So thanks to him for chatting to us. Sammy, that is us for this week. It's um, It's been great. Thank you to everyone for listening. A friendly reminder that we have a Facebook group where we continue the conversation on during the week where we chat about stories uh, that are happening as they happen. And as well, if you are someone who has enjoyed listening to this, if you've somehow stumbled onto us by accident, please subscribe, please rate. Uh, it means so much to us. Absolutely. The, the amount of feedback we've gotten so far has been wonderful. And the Facebook page is turning into a nice, lovely community already, which has been great to see. So yeah, join the community and um, you know, spread the word. The democracy is happening right here. <laughs> Sammy, have a great week. Thank you very much. Enjoy not being tear gassed in the face while you protest outside CFMU or whatever you get up to, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.